Apple presents events at the Apple Store. I'd like to invite you guys to take a look at the trailer for Cosmopolis. Show me my car. Any special reason we're in the car instead of the office? What makes you think we're in the car instead of the office? What do you do exactly? I think you acquire information and turn it into something stupendous and awful. It's the glow of cyber capital. So radiant and seductive. Do you ever get the feeling that you don't know what's going on? Something will happen soon. The situation isn't stable. I know. I'm losing money by the ton. Hundreds of millions. There is someone who's prepared to kill you. My personal fortune is in ruins, and there's been a credible threat on my life. Makes me feel free in a way I've never known. Free to do what? People eat and sleep in the shadow of what we do. This is a protest against the future. The urge to destroy is a creative urge. It's interesting to be near a man somebody wants to kill. I'm looking for more. Stun me to my DNA. Show me something I don't know. I thought you were some kind of big shot. Destroyed people in the blink of an eye. You're a dangerous person. Your whole waking life is a self-contradiction. We still want what we want. Everything in our lives has brought us to this moment. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator from Screen Crush and Film.com, Jordan Hoffman, and tonight's guest, David Cronenberg. Uh, thanks for coming. This is an exciting uh, time to be a David Cronenberg fan. Cosmopolis is coming out tomorrow, and it is one of the better movies you're going to see this year. It is very, very entertaining. <clears throat> um, it's a um, collaboration between... Three people, really. Uh, David Cronenberg, whose work you know, obviously. Cosmopolis, which is coming out. Recent work, just to remind you, in case you've forgotten. Uh, Dangerous Method, uh, uh, Crash, Going Back a While's The Dead Zone, Naked Lunch, Scanners, The Brood, uh, uh, The Fly, D D Dead Ring, pretty much every great movie you've ever seen. Um, uh, the novelist Don DeLillo, uh, who really, um, sort of uh, made the word postmodern not a dirty word anymore with uh, white noise in the late 1980s and wrote the kind of doorstopper novel Underworld, which is one of the better books about uh, America during the Cold War, and this relatively new book, Cosmopolis. And the movie star uh, who, until today, we haven't really seen in a, uh, in a, in a film... Well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but, uh, but a, a very, very interesting and fantastic performance from Robert Pattinson, which took me by surprise and will probably take a lot of you by surprise as well. So my first question um, is really uh, your process in choosing um, 
uh, projects because you've you've adapted plays, you've adapted uh, other people's screenplays, you've written your own screenplays, and you've adapted novels. So when you're in between projects, are you sort of always on the prowl for where's the next project going to come from? And is that how you approached Cosmopolis? Or is this something you just read because you were a DeLillo fan and then thought about it? Well, um, I'm actually extraordinarily lazy. And so I kind of keep hoping that nothing will happen and then I won't have to work. But uh, Cosmopolis happened in, a, in an unusual way. That is a, a Portuguese producer named Paulo Branco who's produced literally over 200 movies, but uh, none of them in English, and, and, uh, and, and so not many would be seen here, but they're, they're seen in Europe a lot. Um, he came to Toronto, which is where I live, and he said he'd like to meet me, and uh, so I said, sure. And he, he's, he handed me this book, which was Cosmopolis, and I said, well, I, I know the work of Don DeLillo. I've read quite a few of his novels. He is a great, one of the great current American writers, no question. And, um, but I haven't read, haven't read this book, so let me take a look at it. <clears throat> and two days later, I phoned him and said, you know, it's, I, I, I think it's a movie uh, that I'd like to make, but let me, let me experiment with it. And uh, what I did was, I, I thought that the dialogue was fantastic. It was just so, it was unique, it was uh, fresh, riveting, uh, surreal, but also real, you know? And, and I know that from Don's other novels, his, his dialogue is, is, is extraordinary. And not all novelists, even very good ones, write sort of dramatic dialogue. You know, it might, look, it might work on the page, but it's not something you'd want to hear on the stage or hear actors speaking. Uh, but Don's is like that, and, and, and so I, um, I just transcribed it. I, I just took the book, and I, um, I was typing on my Apple MacBook Air, um, second generation, and, um, uh, and I tra transcribed the dialogue just as though it was a, a screenplay and took that out of, the, out of the novel, because there's a lot of other writing in the novel besides just the dialogue. And... Um, uh, and after that, I looked at it and I said, is this a movie? And then I said, yeah. Not only is it a movie, it's a movie I really want to make. And so that was, that's how it all happened. Well, that, that's really amazing to me because the, the, the dialogue in the film, um, and we have some clips that we can show in a little bit, but the dialogue in the film feels very much of a piece with your other work. I mean, there's, there, there is sort of a... Um, uh, there's a mannered way in which they speak. There's a, you know, a heavy vocabulary. It's not realistic. And you know, think of, you know, think of Jeff Goldblum's monologue in The Fly. You know, taste I speak like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> taste deep, but drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. Can you dig it or you something like that? You don't say this. <laughs> so I find that to me very interesting that that was not something that you had to had to, that was already in there. So it's sort of a match made in heaven. I mean, it, it, it's uh, I've heard critiques of this movie's sort of like. People don't talk that way, and it's sort of like, well, that's assuming that in a movie people should talk the way normal people talk, and I, and and for me that's just a one possibility, but it's not the only possibility. I mean, in in Shakespeare's plays, people don't talk the way normal people talked even then in the 16th century either, but it doesn't mean the plays don't work. So I don't really consider that a, a necessary part of filmmaking that it. Uh, there, you can make a sort of movie that has a docudrama kind of feel and then you want it to feel like the way people talk on the street. Uh, although I have to say, weirdly enough, um, 
It's almost it's a bit like Harold Pinter, the the English playwright. People talk about Pinteresque dialogue because his dialogue is the way English people speak, but very highly stylized, and it gives it a weird sort of tension between reality and a sort of artist vision of the way people talk. Well, you know, it, it, it's funny because it does it is striking in the first scene. You're like, wow, this is not how people talk, and then it you begin to get into it and it washes over you, and it becomes its own internal logic, and, and you really start to dig it. Um, but th the one thing that we haven't really mentioned is, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, oh, there's this sort of, you know, vexing dialogue in the film, but that's not really the case. It's actually very, very funny once you get on its wavelength. And um, I've seen every one of your films, and I think this is without question the one that I laughed the most at. Uh, that it was just, I was He's having... Not, this is not meant... He does not insult me here. <laughs> no, this is not an insult. This is... I'm a film critic, and what I do is I sit in a theater and I sometimes jot down little notes. When there's a great line of dialogue, I say, oh, maybe I'll include that in my review. Uh, that's particularly poignant, witty. And what I realized is I was just taking dictation during Cosmopolis, because every line was a zinger. I don't mean it as a Groucho Marx zinger, but I mean it as a, you know, wow, that's, that's a good one, that's a good one. So. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about, about comedy and, and, and your work, because a lot of people think of you as, um, you know, your earlier work was, was very, you know, if, if I may say disgusting, some of your earlier work was, was gross Even and repulsive, repulsive horrifying, repulsive, yeah. and then you've made... Uh, you but know, they were funny, too. They were, well, let's, so let's talk about no, no, humor. They were, they were. I mean, some people say to me, when are you going to make a comedy? And I say, I thought that's what I was doing. You know, uh, I, I haven't made... Well, maybe the one movie I thought was maybe not funny was The Brood. I was, it just was a not funny year for me that year. But other than that, I think there's comedy... Major comic elements in all of my movies, including A Dangerous Method, which is about Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, but uh, there's a lot of humor there because actually those guys, and particularly Sigmund Freud, he was funny. He had a really acerbic, uh, acid sense of humor, and uh, and it's not what people normally think of when they think of Sigmund Freud. But if you read his writings, you see it very clearly. Well, he wrote a book, Wit in the Unconscious, right? That was yeah, uh, but it could have that could have been a very it was a serious book, but uh, but he understand hum understood humor and he understood uh, the, the sort of deeper uses of it. Like you can use humor as a weapon. You know, you can really attack someone, of course, with humor. The Brood is a little bit funny. I, I believe the Soma Free Institute for Psychoplasmics. Yeah, is that's a, a little funny. A little <laughs> <laughs> so um, the other thing uh, that I think is interesting about uh, all your work, and particularly Cosmopolis, is um, it seems to be, I mean, you don't wear your philosophy on your sleeve, but it does have a deviant quality to it, if it will. There, there is sort of a, in the film uh, you see, and we haven't even really gotten into the clips yet, but... Um, uh, it is about a, a one of these sort of master of the universe billionaire capitalists who's having a, a really really bad day, and uh, we're, we're well, at least my reading of it is that we're sort of on the side of the people that are giving him a bad day, and there is a level of deviance to that. And the other day, I nearly fell off my chair when I saw that you had a press opportunity. Uh, at the New York Stock Exchange, where you and Robert Pattinson went and rang the opening bell, which is common for movies, you know, when the new James Bond movie comes out, they'll schlep Daniel Craig down there and he'll ring the bell. But this is a movie that, at least in my interpretation, is as close to saying burn down the stock exchange as you'll ever see, and here they are inviting you to the stock exchange. So how giddy were you that morning? Well. 
you know, they were happy, laughing, amiable capitalists. And, uh, and I started to think, why? I, I should be buying stocks. I mean, I don't know why I've been fighting it for so long, you know. Uh, they were very enthusiastic, very friendly, and they definitely love their stock exchange and its history and its importance in the world and all of that. And it was really kind of sweet, I have to say. It was really nice. But at the same time, and they were all very excited to see the movie, and in all the halls leading up to the, the stock exchange floor, there were embedded uh, 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 video systems where they were showing clips from Cosmopolis, you know, and they're all saying how excited they are to see it. Um, and uh, and I, I think um, uh, it was sort of like visiting the scene of the crime for me, you know, <laughs> in a weird way. Well, I mean, uh, we're, and, we're yet, and yet, you know, a truth, the movie itself is not exactly anti-capitalist. It's it's there's it's a complex thing. It's a complex thing, and even to the extent that you could say that the Occupy Wall Street movement, which really Don DeLillo anticipated 12 years ago, and because in the movie there are anti sort of Wall Street riots in the street, which uh, at the time the book came out, uh, critics actually said this this sort of demonstrations on Wall Street against capitalism is completely unconvincing. That would never happen in New York. And of course, you know, so he was right and they were wrong. But it's not really, it's not so much that they're, they're not communists, you know, they're not against capitalism per se, they're against the fact that they are not participating enough in the capitalist uh, process. And so you can't really say they're Exactly, anti-capitalism. Well, they're not communists, but what's their slogan? Their slogan is a specter haunting the world, which is the first line. Ah, uh, but now you're talking about the movie. I was talking about Occupy Wall oh, Street. Oh, okay. All I right, don't okay. think Occupy Wall Streeters are quoting the Communist Manifesto. However, in the movie, yes, there is an allusion to uh, an allusion to uh, Marx's preface to the the uh, Communist Manifesto. Yeah. There are some people in a diner that say that say the opening line of the manifesto: uh, "Specter is haunting the world," and then they throw rats at people. Which means we should probably see a clip because we have a clip from that scene in the diner. So maybe that's a good okay, segue. Okay, let's look at it. Um, just to give you a little bit of setup. Um, uh, our hero, Robert Pattinson, is a billionaire puppet master. Uh, he decides he wants to go across town to get a haircut, despite the fact that his security team says it's a bad day to do it. The president's in town. A rap mogul has died and has a funeral procession, and there is a, quote, credible threat. He says, I don't care. I'm getting my haircut. And he gets in his ultra-stretch limo, which sort of works as his throne. And there he is on his throne receiving people along the way making stops along the way, he stops at the diner to visit his new wife. So, Matt, we have the diner for scene? We've been married only weeks. Barely weeks. Everything's barely weeks. We have minutes to live. We don't want to start counting the times, do we? And having solemn discussions on the subject. No, we want to do it. And we will. We shall. We want to have it. Sex. Yes. Because there isn't time not to have it. Time is a thing that grows scarcer every day. What? You don't know this? So, um, which brings us... But you love those short lenses in those, in those dialogue scenes. It's, uh, in, all, in all of your films, it's always the short lenses in those dialogue scenes. You've, you love those short yes, lenses. Yes, yes. Uh, which we call wide-angle lenses. Yeah, short lenses is legit. Um, 
when we're when I, my director of photography I've worked with um, since 1988 when we did Dead Ringers. He shot every movie that I've done. Peter Sushitsky. He also shot movies like um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show and The Empire Strikes Back. So, <laughs> a broad range. But um, uh, when we're starting to shoot, we, we really don't know what we're going to do. I mean, we, we, you know, you do a lot of prep and you create this limo interior, which is like a Lego limo. It's got 24 pieces that come apart. It's split sideways and lengthways. And uh, it's not a real limo at all. But uh, it's the only way that you could do it and actually shoot the angles that I wanted to shoot and light it. Uh, we don't know what we're going to do. You know, we don't know what lens we're going to use for the first close-up. It's always a kind of a, a significant moment. It's like, okay, what lens shall we try? You know, and uh, and lately we've been using a lot of very wide-angle lenses, which for an actor is kind of significant because with a long lens that is like a sort of a telephoto lens, I can be back here and have a close-up. But with a short lens, the camera is right there. And the actor really has the camera right in his face. And uh, it also makes it difficult for him to see who he's talking to. And it, it, really, um, it really affects the performance in an interesting way. And you have to make sure it's the right way. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about your lead actor. He's in 98% of the scenes, probably, uh, or 100% even, maybe. He's in 100% of the scenes. And uh, I mean, even in a big, let's say, Tom Cruise movie, Tom will not be in every, absolutely every scene. But in this movie, Rob is in absolutely every scene. And, and you know, I'll, I'll speak bluntly. Um, he, here was a guy who was a movie star before we really knew him. You know, Harry Potter, and then the Twilight films, and... To my personal taste, I never really give the guy, I never really thought about the guy outside of that context. And then I hear he's working with you and I go, huh, interesting. And uh, he's terrific. He's absolutely fantastic. And he has a, an arc and he does a, a fun accent. He's very funny. Um, with casting someone like Robert Pattinson, that does give you some baggage in that he has a, baggage is the wrong word, but uh, it, he, he comes with a fan base that is, camping out outside the Museum of Modern Art, not to see the Cezannes, but to wave to Robert Pattinson when he I goes I thought they were there to see me. <laughs> you really have crushed me. Sorry. Um, this is an audience that, without being overly negative, is perhaps not, you, not accustomed to a sophisticated language of cinema that often comes in your work. Uh, is that a politically correct way of saying it? They're going to go see Cosmopolis, and they've never seen a movie like this before. Are you excited for that dialogue that's going to come out of it? Uh, well, you know, in a, w a weird way, I've had a bit of a taste of that already because while we were shooting, uh, the, the Twilight fans were creating Cosmopolis websites. And they were really uh, more like, they were Rob fans, not just Cosmopolis, uh, uh, Twilight fans. And some of those um, websites were beautiful. They were actually, some of them were better than the official Cosmo website, I have to tell you. And they were lovely, and they, they were getting feeds from people in Toronto, which is where the movie was shot, uh, from people who were taking photos from their balcony with cell phones and stuff like that, and feeding them to the, the blogs. And they, these, they were mostly young girls, and they were reading Cosmopolis. They were reading the book, they were talking about it, and they were trading notes about it, and it wasn't phasing them. I mean, they were still excited about it. And uh, they probably had not read anything besides Harry Potter and Twilight. And they were reading Don DeLillo. So that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad cool. thing. That's pretty great. Well, we're going to take some questions from the audience in a little bit. So if you have something cool that you'd like to ask, um, get that moving in the back of your mind. Uh, just, you know, we're here at the Apple Store. Um, the movie is not really set 
It's not set now. It's not set in the future. It's set sort of whenever you want it to be. But there are some aspects of technology in the film that are not 100% realized yet. I'm wondering um, a little bit about how technology informs informs the movie, how it was made, how it was designed, and also a little bit about yourself. How does technology change you? I mean, you, you know, I, you know, when I, when I was in high school, I wrote my term papers on a, on a typewriter. Have you had moments in your personal life where you say, holy shit, I'm living in the future right now. This is freaking me out. No, I'm pretty much, you know, um, I, I am a, a bit of a techno geek. And uh, my father was a gadget freak. You know, he had the first IBM Selectric typewriter in Canada. And uh, I used to fall asleep to the sound of him typing. He was a writer, a journalist. Um, and uh, so I've always, yeah, I've had a very good relationship with technology. I have to say it's not something that, uh, that, uh, that uh, confused me or intimidated me. And uh, it's true that in some of my movies, there seems to be a criticism of technology. But in fact, I think if you go a little deeper, you see that my feeling is very strongly that technology is a projection of us, of humans. I mean, it, it literally, in the sense that a phone is a, as an extension of the ear and the voice, and weapons are an extension of the hand and the fist, uh, and so on and so on. And so when people just tried to, some sci-fi movies of, of the past, some of which I love, would, would present technology as sort of a dehumanized thing, you know, a sort of anti-human thing, uh, imposed almost li sometimes literally from outer space and so on, but in fact we're we're really the only creatures that create technology. It is completely a projection of us, and and therefore technology has all the good and bad qualities that humans have. So yes, technology can be very destructive and have very very uh, sort of horrible consequences, and other technology is fantastic and very human and very, you know, really enhancing and terrific. Well, you know, it's funny. That, that leads me directly. You may have noticed I was carrying this around. I was on the plane yesterday, as made evident by this ticket, and I read something that made me say, holy shit, I'm talking to David Cronenberg tomorrow, and I'm reading this today because this reminded me of half of your movies. So I'll, I'll just read you a quick blurb. This is from the August edition of Scientific American. <clears throat> and it is about how um, uh, some scientists have discovered that if they give certain, they can power small electronics like cell phones with bacteria that they feed viruses. This will bring, quote, a lot of excitement to the field by utilizing the properties of these biomaterials, we can find unique applications in the future, such as a pacemaker powered by the beating of one's own heart. I actually did that in my kitchen last week. <laughs> uh, I've been playing with uh, viruses and bacteria as, uh, as uh, computer elements for years. Um, I, well, in truth, I have invented some things in my movies that have taken a long time to actually happen. But I can say, for example, in my movie Rabid, I actually um, stem cells. I uh, I invented them for that movie, um, <laughs> and it took about you know 30 years for the world to catch up. But honestly, I did anticipate that. I, I really and that's cool in Canada where you're from. In America, stem cells are not so kosher. But in yeah, Canada, well, it's but okay. you know it's. <laughs> it's the future, folks, you know, and it's a, and it's a good thing. But um, as I say, a good thing and, of course, also a bad thing because it, w when humans are manipulating anything, it can go either way. Well, well self-powered bacteria in a pacemaker leads me to my last question, which is uh, film writers will sometimes throw out a word 
uh, in writing about your films or writing about an up-and-coming filmmaker's films, they'll throw out the word Cronenbergian. You, I read it constantly. And I wonder if uh, that must be flattering, but that must also bug you. Like, hey, who the hell are you? What do you know what Cronenbergian is? I'm, I'm the guy. You know, what, what, what does it mean to you? No. What do you feel when you... You have to have read that because... It, yeah, well, I, I kind of always like Cronenbergundian. But but nobody ever picked up on that, so I guess I have to accept Cronenbergian or Cronenberg-esque, maybe. Um, uh, you know, in, in some ways, and it's, it's a, a joke, but I mean, in the old days, you know, when F Federico Fellini was, was one of my favorite filmmakers, and people will talk about a Fellini-esque moment, or a Franz Kafka, Kafka-esque episode in your life, and you, you can't, it's, it's sort of irresistible to think that what you want to become as an artist is an adjective. You know? So if you can become an adjective, that means that your sensibility has somehow permeated the zeitgeist to the point where everybody understands what is meant when you say, God, that was a Kafkaesque moment I had at the licensing bureau, you know? And everybody gets it. And uh, they might not even know who Kafka was or, or, or have read anything, but at least his, his name uh, still, you know, it, it, it exists in, in that weird uh, space. Have you seen it, though, in ways where it's been like, that's not Cronenbergian at all. What are you talking about? Well, you know, I'll take it, really. Right. I mean, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's almost never an insult. You know, sure. it's uh, an illusion. And so even if they're wrong, <laughs> it's, still kind of it's okay. Okay, so we have time for some questions here. Um, and where ah, the microphone is over here. Does anybody have any questions? How did Jeremy Irons act twice in Dead Ringers is one I've never always wanted to know. The, the mirrors, I'm sure, were involved, but okay. Hi, thanks so much for coming today. Um, in this world where you're competing with so many visual uh, technologies and ways of presenting visual information. What draws you to cinema in 2012? What makes you want to project these ideas of yours in this particular format? Well, um, certainly it's true that for any, any creative person, the world is, you know, it, it's, it's a cornucopia of, of inventiveness and strangeness and bizarreness, and it's very hard to keep up if that's your game, you know. And really, I, I sort of really feel more that I'm observing things rather than inventing things. It's not, uh, though, though, for example, Cosmopolis in a weird way is, 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 a, is a prophecy come true by Don DeLillo 10 years later. I know from talking to him and, and my own version of that, which was Videodrome, which everybody thinks was inventing the internet and a few other things. Um, but, you know, it, it's not in our job description really to be prophets. Really, I think we are observing very closely what is going on in the present. And sometimes, because we have these antennae that we, you know, maybe are a little more sensitive than other people, or at least we, we want, we encourage them to be sensitive, we pick up on things that are happening right now that will have a uh, ripple effect into the future. And so it seems as though we're predicting the future. But really, um, uh, any, you know, any art form is, is sort of doing that, is doing the same thing. And it doesn't really matter if it's painting or digital or, or, or whatever it is. Of course, I, I actually thought I would be a novelist. I never imagined that I would be making films. It's almost 
I'm still not sure it's the right career for me, you know? Um, and I am actually writing a novel that I have to finish by the end of the year or I'm in big trouble with my publishers. So it would be my first novel after all these years. So uh, it's not... Um, um, there are many ways you can you can be an artist. I mean, uh, literally an infinite number of ways. There's the and and uh, but it's it's the urge to be creative, and it's the urge to uh, to observe and to not even necessarily comment or have an opinion, but by observing um, in in sort of microscopic detail various things that maybe escape other people's notice you will be automatically in a way commenting making a comment on things that you see so it's not really a question of technology you know or I mean it, you you take what's available uh, it doesn't surprise me that that some famous um, painters have taken well the iPad you know and uh, and uh, programs like brushes and so on to suddenly create their art. Uh, we had an exhibit in Toronto, it was iPads on, on the wall, from a painter who had up to that point only done paintings. It's, it's, um, it's, the, it's the urge to create and to somehow embody in, in, in your art what you see. That is the important thing. The technology is not the important thing. Next question, all the way to the back to the right. Uh, hello, David. Uh, I have a two-part question for you. With uh, the changes in uh, technology and in the way things are so cheap now, and they're still high quality, would you have made any of your films in the past differently with today's technology, and um, how has it freed you with the way technology is today? Well, um, I'm, I would be, honestly, I think it's ex totally possible, of course, to shoot a movie with your iPhone, and, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it would be cheap. You know, um, because uh, the things that cost money are labor. You know, people's time. Um, uh, so, so it's it's uh, the, there's always been cheap technology. I mean, when I was starting, uh, people were shooting uh, feature films on eight millimeter film. You know, home movie film, but they would make a feature film that well, way. Well, your first film has no synchronous sound. Your first two films, I think, have no synchronous. That's correct. Well, no, actually, my first two features. I actually made two. Uh, shorts before that w in 16 millimeter with sync sound, but once you were shooting in 35 millimeter, which I did after that, uh, to shoot 35 millimeter with uh, with sound with synchronized sound meant you had to have a huge what they called a blimp. It would because the cameras were very noisy. I mean, incredibly noisy, and. Um, because they were all designed in the silent era when, when movies didn't have sound, so it didn't matter that they were noisy. So to shoot 35 millimeter sync sound was an incredible problem. Now, literally, you were doing the equivalent on your iPhone, for example. You were shooting sync sound, no problem. People don't know how that it used to be a problem, let's put it that way. But what was interesting to me as a fan, those two films I'm talking about, they're called Stereo and Crimes of the Future, I love those movies because they don't have sync sound. That's so rare. And Stereo is one of my favorite movies to watch at three in the morning when I can't sleep. You are uh, a very strange but wonderful <laughs> no, no, person. No, I love it. It's a, it's a, who's seen Stereo? Come on. It's, it's out on DVD. Yeah. It's a really weird... I can't describe yeah. it, but it, it has, an, has a quality to well, it. Well, it's very dreamlike as a result. And, and, uh, and uh, I, of course, um, in those days, and I must say even now, I am... For good or bad, relatively immune to the demands of the marketplace. You know, I mean, my movies are not normally commercially very successful, really. 
uh, and and it's my own fault because I'm not you know I'm not trying to do that that's not the main reason that I'm making the movies but on the other hand they do cost money uh, and um, I think uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cosmopolis is the first movie that I've shot digitally. Uh, it's, it's really because of my uh, director of photography was uh, reluctant to get into it until he felt he had, had you know, come to terms with it. But uh, sound in movies has been digital for many years. Editing has been digital for many years. It was inevitable that film would be finished. And uh, really, it is over. I mean, it's over for film. Uh, there are a few holdouts, but really minor. Um, and I have no problem with that at all. I mean, I, 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 I prefer digital for many, many reasons to, to, to film. Um, so it's really just a question of coming to terms with it. But money is, you know, a lot of the money involved in filmmaking is promoting the film, is finding a way to get people to know that the film is out there, uh, to do things like this, which I know he's getting vast amounts of money for. He's going to be swimming in iPads later, yeah. is it? Are there other questions out there? Uh so, uh, far left corner. Hi, uh, good afternoon, Mr. Cronenberg. Uh, A History of Violence is one of my all-time favorite movies. And uh, if I may go back to the first question about your process of choosing a project, uh, I'd like to know if it's true that uh, you turned down several big movies like uh, Top Gun, Return of the Jedi, um, but there's possibly also Total Recall and uh, a lot of other movies. Um, is this true? And uh, if it's true, would you like to share with us the reasons why? Yeah, I mean, uh, Top Gun, yeah, was a possibility many years ago. And uh, I really felt I didn't, I, 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 didn't, I couldn't connect with that movie. I couldn't, you know, I, may, I, I certainly could when I watched it. I understood it. Enough, but this tone of it was not something that I was in sympathy with, I have to say. And also, and this might strike you as strange, but it, it's true, that movie is quintessentially American, and I am not an American, and there is a, a real difference. I mean, I'm Canadian. We're connected. We're cousins. We understand each other up to a certain point. But beyond that, there, we're, we're really quite different cultures. And, um, and I actually have often had scripts sent to me where, that I said, you know, I, I, don't, I actually cannot do this because I don't understand it enough, well enough. And, and I feel that the reason for that is that I, I'm not American. Whereas Cosmopolis is, it is New York, but it's kind of a surreal New York, you know, and it's not, it's not, it's more universal, let's say, than absolutely American. So that's one strange reason that you might not think of that I would turn down a movie. Um, yes, Return of the Jedi was proposed to me for about two seconds. Uh, I, I was in my kitchen, I remember very well, and I, I got a phone call and they said, this is, uh, what his name is, I'm, I'm calling from George Lucas's office, and uh, we were wondering if you would be interested in doing the new... Um, the new Star Wars movie, which at the time was called Revenge of the Jedi. And I said, here's, here's the classic really wrong thing to say in those circumstances. If, you're, if George ever calls you, don't say this. I said, well, I don't usually do other people's material. <laughs> and it was kind of like, click. <laughs> that was it. So I think what was required was unbridled enthusiasm, like, oh, yes, I'd be so excited. But I was, I was telling the truth. I was thinking, well, I don't know. Would I be interested in that? And I sort of was saying that on the phone, and that wasn't good enough. So in each case, there's a weird 
For a particular reason. I mean, at, at one point, um, I was really pursued by the, the head of a studio named Don Steele to do Flashdance. I don't know if you remember that movie. Um, for some reason, she thought I was the guy to do Flashdance. And I said, you know, you will not be happy with what I would do with this movie. <laughs> it will, I will destroy this movie, and not meaning to. Anyway, so it's sort of like that. What can I say? How about Robocop? Sorry? Robocop? Uh, Robocop, once again, I, I really thought um, that it was, I could see that it could be an interesting movie, but it was t too familiar to me, you know, and I, its satire of corporate America was to me a little too obvious, I have to say. This is, I'm talking about the script. Also, at the time, I think they wanted St uh, Stallone to do it, really. And, and that, that put a different tone to it, you know? Um, and, uh, and I really, I thought the fact that they got a European to direct it was great because his, his perspective on it was quite unusual and quite outside America. And, and maybe being a Canadian in that case, I was a little too close to America to, to really get that perspective. You know, so it's a kind of, in each case, it's not that I wouldn't, uh, the idea of doing a big studio movie in, in theory is, why not, you know, if it's an interesting project. But I've never actually managed to do it because of, there have been various reasons. The, the Dead Zone and The Fly were both, your, those are your studio No, they, they no? weren't really because um, they always had another entity in between me and the studio. For example, The Fly was Mel Brooks and Brooks Films. It really produced it for Fox. And uh, The Dead Zone was Dino De Laurentiis for Paramount. And even M. Butterfly, which uh, people don't talk about much, but uh, a movie I, I still like a lot. Uh, was uh, David Geffen for Warner Brothers. So it, it's, um, um, I've never really done an in-house movie. Actually, in a way, History of Violence was the, the closest I've come to a pure studio movie because that was just me and uh, New Line. Was, uh, well, while we're talking about uh, myths and legends, is, is it true that uh, while you were making scanners, you were basically getting up in the morning, r r figuring out where you could shoot, writing a scene and shooting it. Is, that, is there any truth to that? Or? Yeah, it's even worse than that. At lunchtime, I was trying to figure out what we were going to shoot after lunch and writing it. Um, and the reason for that was the weird situation in Canada at the time. The tax laws suddenly um, gave breaks to, to uh, anybody who would invest in a film would get a tax write-off. And so in October or November, all the dentists and doctors and lawyers suddenly realized, my God, I made too much money, I need a tax break, and I'm going to invest in a movie. And suddenly there would be all this money flooding in, uh, but no projects. So I had a producer who said, what have you got? And, and I said, well, you know, I don't know, maybe some, you know, psychic warfare, uh, these, um, <laughs> you know. Okay, we're shooting in two weeks. Honestly, I had no script. And so that was, I mean, it was, that is still remains to this day the hardest shoot that wow. I've ever undertaken. Now, are, are, are and it's because uh, we, we were unprepared, you know? The, the movie, you know, it holds up. I mean, I really like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a dangerous method. It's not a Cosmopolis, but it, yeah. it has a... Uh, you know, it's not a bad film. I mean, do you... Yeah, do no, I... I eventually, it, it came together, but it's the only movie I've done reshoots on. I mean, because we were literally... I had to... You know, we didn't really have an ending, and I had to sort of... We had to shoot that after the fact. So it's the only movie that I've done reshoots on, actually. Um, 
Yeah, the ending of that. You know, it's funny. Um, when you, you say the ending of Scanners, I immediately think of the music. And we have we mentioned Peter Shushitsky. We didn't talk about Howard Shore, which you did, were you the first film film work that he did was. No, he did. He did uh, one other film. He had done one other film uh, called I, I think it was called I Miss You Hugs and Kisses, which is actually it was a, a pretty tough movie. It was actually about a, a, a husband who who uh, a, a true story about a husband who puts a hit out on his wife successfully, and um, uh, but I think that was the first movie that he had done a film score for. Now I I'd known Howard in Toronto f as a friend for years, and he did he was the music director for Saturday Night Live. Uh, for years, and he had a uh, he had a couple of rock groups and so on. So I knew him as as a musician and a friend, uh, but I didn't know him as a as a, a writer of film scores until he did that that particular film. And he's done pretty much all of your work. And then also, if, if the name isn't ringing a bell, I mean, massive, famous score, Lord of the Rings. That's all that that's that's him. And and you you were pretty much the the guy who came up with him at that time. Yeah, so. it would it, it, the it's only the Dead Zone that uh, he didn't do of the of the original scores that I had done. Yeah. We have time for two more questions, in the back, in the middle. Hi, uh, you were talking. A lot about uh, movies that you uh, hi, uh, uh, didn't really want to do or it didn't quite work out. Are there movies that you wanted to do but it didn't work out or still uh, haven't had the chance to make? Or, or are you at the point where you don't have projects left over anymore? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that they're projects left over because once they're dead, they're kind of dead. But no, there were, there were a lot of things that I tried to get made and could not get made. Um, I talk about this sometimes with Marty Scorsese because people think, hey, Marty can do any movie he wants to do, and the, the answer is no, not really. Yeah, he has to fight for the things he wants to do. It, it's inevitable, you know. Uh, and especially now, it's, it's tough to get a movie financed even more because, of course, of the economic problems around the world, and that certainly affects movies just like any other business. So, um, for example, the most recent thing was uh, we were really thinking that we would be doing Eastern Promises 2, a sequel to Eastern Promises with Vigo Mortensen and Vincent Cassell, uh, reprising their roles that they uh, from Eastern Promises. And I really thought it would we'd be in prep in October and shooting in January, and it just died like maybe two weeks ago, uh, for various reasons. So. There are, you know, the, the highway of my past is littered with roadkill. <laughs> I can put it that way. Third row, stage left. Hi. Um, David, I'm very excited for Antiviral. I think your son's done an amazing job on that. Looks really, really good. I just watched the trailer yesterday, in fact. Did you uh, consult on that too much, or did he pretty much just fly on that? Kind of, that was his own project, and he just did his own thing. Um, he's talking about a movie called Antiviral, which my son Brandon Cronenberg uh, uh, made, wrote, and directed, and, uh, and presented at the Cannes Film Festival. It was uh, pretty exciting, because it was the first time that a father and son duo had both their films in, in as official selections in Cannes. And they're very tough there. They're not sentimental. There's no way that they would sort of allow his film in the festival just because of me. In fact, they turned down Dangerous Methods, so you can, you know, they're tough. Uh, they're very tough. We went to Venice with that one instead. So um, 
I, I really didn't have anything to do with the film. I mean, uh, yes, he, he, he would send me the script to read uh, and just, you know, sort of general feedback. But his, and, and, and a lot of the crew that are working, worked on his film, worked on my films, which is interesting because I got interesting feedback about how he is as a director. And uh, sort of like, he really knows what he's doing. He really knows what he wants. And my wife and I are saying, really? <laughs> I mean, he's never been like that before. But um, uh, he's really, uh, he's, he's, uh, the movie's terrific. And um, uh, really, it was his producer who was his mentor on that film. And that's really, I think, the way it should be. You know, it's, uh, he and I are very close. And uh, there's no, no, no question of that. But day-to-day -day details of producing a film and, and making a film, it's your producer, really, who is your, should be your best buddy. If, when it works out properly, that's the way it should be. And uh, Neve Fishman is the guy who produced it. He's produced uh, some very interesting films, uh, one called The Red Violin, which was fairly successful, one called Silk, and one called Blindness, which was the adaptation of a very well-known novel. And, uh, and it was great that he produced Brandon's film. And he was, it was a terrific experience for both of them. So I think it, they're it, looking may, it may mean that that adjective may change. Uh, it, it'll have to be... Will, uh, yeah, they, well, we'll see. Let's, you watch that movie and you tell me. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Go see Cosmopolis this weekend. Tell your friends. Tweet about it. Thank you very it. much. Pleasure. Thank you.